This is RDQI. Dave, if you could control the weather, like if you could wake up in the morning and be like, you know, it's sunny and it's nights outside, but I was really hoping for a rainy day and a big cup of coffee. If you could do that, would you? I think you're describing the villain in like every cartoon. Yeah, I guess it, I it works better the other way around, doesn't it? Oh, actually, let's do it the other oh, way around. Oh, my weather machine. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be the other way. Let's say it's a rainy day and you're just like, wow, I really was hoping to have a good day outside. I wish I could push this button and have the rain go away. Would you do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you, you know me and I'm a little weird in this way, but, you know, the the cumulative impact of my life has taught me to enjoy uh the lemons or the cards that you're dealt. Um, and so I, I immediately when, when things don't go the way I planned, I, I already sort of think like, Oh cool. Well, this is an opportunity for something new then what's that going to be. But I also know I'm kind of a weirdo um, <laughs> sure. and I can completely see the impetus of wanting to change the weather. I mean, let's, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not married, but, if I woke up on my wedding day and it was, you know, hailstorm, yeah, I could see the I could see the desire to change the weather. You'd push the button in that moment, then. I well, no, I wouldn't. Oh, um, <laughs> gotcha. But, but <laughs> no, because I I I wouldn't because I just I I don't believe playing God with things around me that shouldn't be played with. I mean, I to get a little bit, uh, call it, you know philosophical or spiritual for just a second here. I mean, I, I tend to approach life as, you know, floating down a a river, you know, you can try and swim against the current. You can try and, you know, swim to the left or right. Uh, and you can make progress, but you're always going to face resistance. It's always so much easier to just let the current carry you. And if it's a rainy day, you can either be angry and sour that it's not a sunny day, or you can just embrace the fact that it's a rainy day. I guarantee you that that second reaction is always going to lead to a better day for you. Yeah. You know, why no, fight I'm, the I current? In, I think I'm much more in your camp in that way. Well, okay, so why fight the current? I mean, the reason um, this question came to mind was the, the news stories coming out of Dubai, um, which is where the U, ooh, United Arab Emirates... They are currently experimenting with using drones to perform something which is called cloud seeding, which is a form of weather modification. So I was, you know, of course, curious what you would want to do if you could change the weather. And basically, cloud seeding is complex, but essentially the idea is this. Go up to a cloud, interact with it with chemicals or something to change its molecular makeup to help encourage it to rain. That is what cloud seeding is. And so the UAE is currently doing this. I believe um, the firm hired to actually carry out the technology side, but I think they're based in the UK, if I'm not mistaken. 
And it's a a weird idea to think that you could basically tell a drone like, hey, go like, this is oversimplified, but hey, go like run electrical current through this cloud and then we'll just make it rain. Like, it, it just seems so, r- wrong in a way. So, so really quick, I when you sent this to me, first of all, I I thought it you it was some sort of autocorrect uh, on the on the text <laughs> sure. that you sent me. A cloud seeding, what is like you planting a cloud? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'd I'd never heard of this. Um, but really quick to frame it up for people, why would somebody want to make it rain? Well, <clears throat> let's just focus on why eight states in the United States actively carry out this process. These states are in the West, so think Colorado, Montana, Utah, Nevada. And the list goes on. The West has been in a drought condition for a very, very long time. And we're currently in a drought condition in the Western United States that, depending on how accurate the science is, the projections are, is probably the strongest drought this part of the world has seen in the better part of a millennium. So, if you could make it rain and you really needed water, like I'm here in California, in fact, I can't go outside right now because the air quality is so bad because of some forest fires. If you could make it rain, I could see why you'd want to. Like if I could have a cloud show up above the the forest fire that's about, I think it's about 50 miles north of me, 100 miles north of me right now here in Sacramento. And like we knew we could just dump rain on it instead of having to fly all these planes and put in firefighters who risk their lives to fight it. I would sign up for that pretty quickly, to be honest. But I also haven't thought about it too carefully yet. And I think there's a lot of implications to literally making it rain. Now, my first thought was, you know, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Sure. Um, I have always had a little bit of, you know, Midwest pride slash chip on your shoulder, chip on my shoulder, depending on how you look at it. Um, But, you know, I make fun of you about this all the time, like, Hey, you know, why did you move to a place with no water? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. Um, which is, I think you can say about something like California, because, you know, people move out to California because it's 75 degrees and sunny all the time. But then they're like, oh, no, like there's literally no clean water to drink or irrigate our crops with. So we're going to have to, you know, do all this manipulation to get it there. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, I, I live like, 20 miles away from the biggest body of fresh water on the planet. <laughs> right. You son of a... Um, yeah. So part of me thinks like, hey guys, maybe like... I, I mean, I get California. It's it's beautiful. But like, I, I think this way about Arizona. Shout out to our Arizona friend. Um, Just the one though. Not those but other like, two. It's, it's a desert. You live in a desert. Like, you can't... You, you, why, why would you... Why would you want to live there? It's like, hey, let's go live in Arizona. It is completely uninhabitable for human beings unless we, you know, bring all of the air conditioning and all of the water in from different locations. Um, but I mean, that's just me being kind of a, you know, kind of a jerk. Yeah. Now, pl- places like the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, the you know, Iran, the Middle East, where, um, you know, you also have dry, arid, desert-like conditions, extreme heat, uh, where people don't have the luxury to leave. You know, they, they don't necessarily have a, a choice. They That's where they 
exist. And, and I mean, that's, that's true of California too. Like you moved there, but you also have family there. You have family that, you know, grew up there. That's home. You, you know, it's so it's, it's easy for me to say, Hey, just go somewhere else. But, but you know, that's obviously not practical. <laughs> right. Um, well, it might be. In- and well, I might have to be but in the future, I, I, yeah. but I still, I still get, I get the, the impulse. And then when I thought more about it, I realized, well, human beings have a just a long, long, long history of manipulating nature to make life or to improve quality of life, let's say. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it was historically very difficult to get from, let's say, Italy to Germany. There's a giant mountain range in the way. Yep. But we decided, you know what? If we drill holes through it and put trains through it, and, you know, now it's not a problem. You can get there in a couple hours. And man, it's um, one of the best train rides you can go on. Having done it myself, Germany <laughs> to Italy. Yes. Oh. <laughs> or Italy to Germany. That way's fine, too. Yep. Oh yeah, you're getting. Hang on, I'm not going to make that joke. <laughs> so, so, and and no part of me would look at that feat of engineering and say that that is an overreach of of you know human ingenuity onto nature. Sure, but like everything we talk about, there's a line. You and I can come up with an example where you know altering nature to improve quality of life is a great idea. And everybody on earth would say, yes, of course, that's a great idea. And then we can all come up with an example where everybody on earth would say, no, that's a terrible idea. That's an overreach. That's playing God. And we shouldn't do that. And I think cloud seeding is getting closer to trying to play God. Well, if it makes you feel any better, um, the world has known about this problem for a long time the line that we're talking about. And mm. for what it's worth, the UN outlawed cloud seeding as a military tool in 1977. As a military tool? Yeah. Uh, that is Strangely enough, that came out after it was leaked that the United States was engaging in this policy of cloud seeding over the Ho Chi Minh Trail to extend the monsoon season. It's funny huh. how timing works, you know? And basically, I think the U.S. was like, oh, but, you know, the Soviets probably know about this, too. Like, let's just take it off the board. You know, let's get let's remove another weapon off the map. And so, I mean, as much as a unit, you know, the U.N., that's a whole nother conversation, their efficacy on the international level. But, yeah, it's been outlawed for a long time now as a weapon. But outlawed outlawed as a weapon, not as a means to, you know, like irrigate crops and drought, exactly. drought situations, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which is, a, which is a real fine line though, because like, okay, so let's say you're Italian and for some reason, I know the weather patterns don't work this way, but all the clouds flow, flow from the South in the Mediterranean, somehow hop over the Alps and then would eventually rain on Germany. I know that's not how the weather works out there, but let's just pretend it's the truth. Yep. Even if you're in the in the Piedmont in northern Italy and you are cloud seeding and having r- extra rainfall in your territory in your farmland, don't you think that would r- upset the Germans? Because like, but that's our rain. Yeah, that's a that's a key ab- about this. I think that we should mention is the idea is not to create rain. The idea is to take a finite amount of water in the atmosphere and have control over where it falls. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, control is, is a more very or less. Well, control is a very um, maybe not the right word. I mean, influence. Influence. influence that's a better way. There we go. Yeah, because there's certainly no control. We might get into. Well, we'll definitely get into that later. But yeah, influence. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, one of the the um, articles that I was reading brought up the idea that um, you know Dubai does this, and let's you know. It, it works. Well, what it's effectively doing is it's taking rain that would have fallen elsewhere and putting it all. So, you know, so you are you're, you're kind of running into water rights, essentially. But instead of water rights like the Colorado River, it's water rights in the air. Exactly. Um, but it also it also seems to me like a we're trying this solution that and correct me if I'm wrong, because you know more about this than I do. But from what I understand, there isn't really proof that it works. There are instances of correlation where the practice has been done and you've seen an increase in precipitation, but but they haven't been able to prove that it's true causation. Right. Is that is that correct? Okay. No, you're so, you're spot on. I mean, that's so. And just to kind of freshen up, the current state that I was able to research is basically this that. There's new technology available, basically what we would call like high-tech radar, where they can, it's easier for scientists to actually try and study this using the scientific method. So basically the process is um, either you fly a plane up or you shoot it with grenade launchers like China did before the 2008 Beijing Games to hope that it didn't rain during the opening ceremony. Um, You basically drop a chemical, either dry ice, a particular electrolyzed sand could even work, or so or um, silver iodide, which um, silver iodide is just shaped incredibly similarly to ice crystals, and so that's how rain works, right? You have ice crystals that build up in these clouds, and eventually they gain so much mass because they're big that they fall, and obviously they melt and it turns into water, and then we call that rain. That's how rain in general works. So you're just encouraging this process with these chemicals, and it's not unnatural so to speak in the sense that like you're just you're using the qualities that are in the cloud already and just trying to encourage them the problem is how do you accurately know (laughs) it works or not you know how do you have a control you know because you need a control for the scientific method to be applied right so unless you have like two clouds that are like next to each other but separate in the same weather but like Again, so far apart from each other, there will be no interaction between them. And you seed one of the clouds and you don't seed the other cloud and then you examine how they behave. That's really, really hard to do. I mean, we can hardly predict the weather tomorrow with any accuracy. <laughs> you know, so we're, I think we're coming upon a point where as uh, people who are researching this are getting to a point where the technology is like almost there that we could actually start to be a little bit more scientific than just like, well, Flew a plane up there, dropped a bunch of dry ice or silver iodide, and it rained tomorrow. You know, the next day it rained. Like, it must be working. Like, that's not really science. That's just observation. And that's, they're two very, very different things. So there's really no proof that this works yet. My biggest problem then becomes we don't even know it works. Right. Yet we are experimenting with something very powerful and volatile and we have no way of knowing what the downstream impacts 
of this will be. Mm-hmm. You know, we we barely understand climate and ecosystems. I mean, they're incredibly, incredibly complex. Um, and yet we are, you know, effectively changing an entire weather pattern over a very large region um, just to see what happens. <laughs> right. I mean, for for a reason, but, you know, it's... It's one thing if somebody's, you know, tinkering around with some chemicals in their garage and they blow up their garage. Like, well, you know, okay. But if you're tinkering around with a nuclear bomb in your garage, that's a different story. (laughs) Right. There should be some controls over this. Like, let's (laughs) do a controlled experiment in a lab where we don't have, you know, we, we won't have all these catastrophes and calamities downstream environmental impacts happening for for what i see as a very minimal gain and you can argue me there but i i to me that's why i thought this is this is just every shade of stupid i've ever seen like gain not that important potential catastrophe potential for catastrophe so large like the cons outweigh the pros by several orders of magnitude. That's what I think. Well, to bring an anecdote that I think would support that, um, the 50s, in the 1950s, I should say, uh, Great Britain was experimenting with this, just like us Americans were back in uh, the U.S. of A., of course. In fact, it was actually uh, the U.S. experiments, one of the key figures in them, the guy who figured out silver iodide and how it could be utilized, is uh, Kurt Vonnegut's brother, Bernard (laughs) Vonnegut, of all people. Good for um, him. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was amazing. I know. I love, well, I love both Vonnegut's now, I guess. It's pretty cool. Um, so anyways, the RAF, the Royal Air Force, over in Great Britain, they were, you know, they were hip to this thing, too. Um, I'm sure the Americans and the Brits were sharing all sorts of information that might be useful. And so, um, apparently, they, they carried out some tests. Now, of course, categorically, all these tests were denied by the government until there was some audio leaks from some recordings of the flights and then the government eventually had to fess up. Yeah, but so basically, here's a quote I got to read to you. So basically there was this guy named uh, Mr. Alan Yates who was working with, uh, the operation was called Operation Cumulus. A little bit on the nose if you ask me, you know. It could have been a little (laughs) bit better than that. Um, And they're actually using uh, salt in this case instead of silver iodide. And so I believe they're working with warm weather clouds correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but I believe that's how that works. Um, so basically, like, they they've flew into this cloud, carrying out these tests and, you know, dropping this particular type of salt. Here's where I quote Mr. Yates himself. He says, I was told that the rain had been the heaviest for several years, and all out of the sky, which looked summery. There was no disguise in the fact that the seedsmen, like the people, you know, that's a terrible name, but seedsmen, had said he'd make it, make it rain, and he did. Toasts were drunk to the meteorology, and it was not until the BBC News bulletin about Linmouth, which we'll get to in a second, was read later on that a stony silence fell on the company. The problem is, the amount of rain that fell um, was catastrophic. I think almost, I mean, scores of people were killed. Uh, people, people were like swept out to sea. Oh, wow. I mean, it was just, it was a miserable time. Yeah. And so you think like, okay, again, there's no scientific method backing any of this, right? This is not amateur experimentation, but certainly not like, hey, we have a control cloud here 
we have a you know the test cloud here we're going to see how they differentiate and how they behave differently none of that was going on people were just flying up throwing stuff into clouds and seeing what would happen but you can imagine that after whether or not you know operation cumulus was effective you can see why they stopped you know and they see why they realized like yeah, we probably shouldn't be doing this. Like, people died. Whether or not we were directly to cause for it is kind of up in the air. Sorry for the pun. Um, but you can see why they stopped, because it is such a dangerous problem. I mean, like, uh, recently in Germany, there's been mass flooding issues. Um, not to say that any of it was connected to cloud seeding. But what if it was? Like, what if there was a nefarious actor out there who's like, you know what? This technology does work. Let me engage and try to, like, you know, attack my enemies this way. It's a really nefarious, slippery slope. Yeah, I mean, I really about. the only the only real use I see for it is you know military use. Um, <laughs> you know, even if, because it sure. sounds like yeah. let's let's just say that it does work. We've got it to work. We clearly can't really control it though. You know, we can make we can make the the right you know, the, the moisture in the atmosphere do something. We just have to wait and see what it is, you know, and it could be catastrophic flooding. Um, right. Yeah. And just for reference, I believe the eight States in the West that are continuing cloud seeding statistically, they've seen that basically, um, statistically speaking, there is an increase of five to 15% in snowpack, when they're engaging in these processes. It's basically the way water works in the West is you want to encourage snowfall. Snowfall bleeds into melts eventually in the summer, flows into the streams that flow into our rivers that feed everything out West. That's generally the idea. I mean, is five, is 10%, like, is that good enough? Should we keep going if we're only getting 10%? You know, like, is it worth playing God to get a 10% bonus? Yes, especially because, you know, in the U.S., we have a, we have a, a, a pretty um, consistent weather pattern where our weather moves from west to east across the entire country, right? So if you start manipulating water in the west, it I don't know what the impact will be, but I, you know, I would gamble on the fact that it would be some sort of impact to the rest of the country. You would, I mean, you would imagine it's not like water just appears. I mean, it's it's a, it's a law of physics. It can't, matter can't be created; it's just being circulated. And if you take a lot of it out of circulation, yeah, the East Coast might be a little If you upset. add four inches of rain, you know, overall to the state of California, that doesn't solve the need to irrigate crops. It doesn't solve for much at all. Nope. <laughs> Not at all. And again, I, okay. Uh, all right. <laughs> I, I would fight you on that one. But yes, keep going. <laughs> but again, I, you know, it solves, yeah. it solves maybe, a, a, I, it's, it doesn't solve a critical problem it's more of a quality of life i would argue and maybe you agree with that or not but again it's only for a the small number of people yeah. in california with the potential to wreck the quality of life um and potentially even more so more critical things for you know a nation and potentially the world the climate is linked it's, okay. it just goes back to the fact that the you know the the pros are are so few and the cons are so large and devastating let me let me kind of phrase this in a different way or set this up in a different way and kind of ask you a more overarching question. You know, like we talked about at the very beginning, 
humans have always, you know, attempted to, to manipulate nature. Um, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of good has come out of that. Um, but there's always, there's always downstream impacts of, of any sort of, you know, manipulation. There's, there's downstream impacts of human beings just existing on the planet. I mean, that is effect effectively, (laughs) you know, let's not debate the authenticity of it, but Theoretically, climate change is a downstream impact of the way human beings are living currently. And I think the ecosystem mm-hmm. in which we live, and I mean that in the broadest possible sense, right? Ecosystem in terms of plant, you know, flora and fauna, in terms of, of climate, in terms of just you know, our environment in general. Um, there are billions and trillions of inputs that you know modify our environment we we Mm -hmm. never say never but not anytime soon will we truly understand how to get exactly what we want out of our environment there's too many unknowns um so there's an interesting kind of case study or anecdote in farming in regards to this problem so Commercial agriculture in the U.S. is, if you look at it today, if you really, you know, study the way it, like, look at it as an outsider, it makes zero sense. It is just an an amalgamation of, you know, centuries of different people seeing problems, solving those problems, having the solutions become other problems, creating new solutions to solve those problems. It's, it's a case of, you know, you have a, a, mi- a mice infestation, <laughs> right. so you bring in a bunch of cats, and then the cats kill all the mice, but then the cats stick around, so now you have a cat infestation. So what do you do? You bring in, a, a, you know, coyotes to take care of the cats. And then, you know, you're just, you're, you're creating solutions that then become problems. And Rather than dealing with the root cause of the problem to begin with. Right. And it's built an agricultural system that, you know, I don't have time, we don't have time to get into, but like it's, it's very inefficient. It does, you know, doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's very, is very, very detrimental to ecosystems and environments. Like, you know, ecosystems. Yeah. It's a, you know, while we don't understand everything that goes into an ecosystem, it is a, you know, true generalization to say that diversity in ecosystems lead to healthy ecosystems. And if that is true overall, why do we have thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of acres of only one species of corn across the United States? Like that doesn't work. The only reason, and, and so we realize, hey, it doesn't work. So we've created all of these different, you know, like pesticides, uh, fertilizers, very energy intensive fertilization crop, you know, uh, to, to like allow this to work because it wouldn't naturally work ever. Um, so out of this idea, um, and this is sort of a niche, uh, philosophy in terms of, uh, you know, in, in the farming community, um, called permaculture. There's actually a great movie on Hulu, I believe, um, called big little farm and permaculture. The, the word has gotten kind of tossed around or, or, or associated over the last couple of decades with like counterculture and, you know, 
hippie culture. So it's, it's kind of the, the word has lost some credibility there. And so big little farm, it's interesting. They never actually use the word permaculture and they never use any of the, the terminology created within this study. Um, interesting, clever, but yeah, in, in, like right. It. In doing so they, they, it's very, very powerful, but you know, this, this started with, um, I mean, a couple different people, but essentially a group of farmers taking a step back and, and, and just realizing, you know, we keep throwing solutions at these problems, which then become problems. And then we have to fix those problems. Nature has a pretty good way of fixing the problem themselves. They don't necessarily <laughs> do it as quickly as we would like as, you know, quickly as we need for our food supply or our current food supply, um, and, and economy. But if you wait and see nature tends to strive towards an equilibrium and a balance and permaculture is this idea that, you know, you, you, with very little manipulation, you essentially build up these ecosystems in which you don't really have to do anything other than go out and pick food and eat it. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's self-irrigating, it's self-fertilizing, it's self, you know, that it's, keeps going through the, the ecosystem cycle. Um, and you know, part of that is, is looking at a problem. And so now let's take this back to droughts in, in California and the American West or in Dubai anywhere. Um, that is a imbalance in nature and we try and do all these manipulations, therefore preventing nature from correcting the problem itself. But what would happen if we just waited and, you know, waited for nature's solution? Now, nature is, <laughs> nature is impartial, so we might not like the solution. <clears throat> I was about to say, how do you feel about extinction, Dave? <laughs> Because um, uh, nature didn't have a big plan for the dinosaurs, if we're going to say that nature had a plan. That's true. I mean, you know, if you believe a scenario like Armageddon, you know, in that in that movie, they manipulate nature to save the human race. Because um, I, I totally hear where you're coming from. The idea of permaculture is much more respective to the land itself. And it seeks to bring integrity to the ecosystem rather than just impose human will to extract, you know, enough corn so that we, you know, the commodity price is acceptable. You know, it's not a, it's not a decision made on a spreadsheet like conventional farming. It's a decision based on what does the earth allow for us to do, which I think on the whole is a much better way to think about things. Of course, the downside, and we've talked about this before, even on the show is if we were to turn the entire world's agricultural system to a, an organic permaculture farming system, a lot of people would have to die for us to support, like for that to work, you know, because I don't think we could feed seven plus billion people in a pure permaculture fashion. It's certainly I, not like a not like a light switch moment. You know what I mean? Like there would have to be a transition. Yes. So right. so I I and you can't prove this, but just just based on the output that I've seen from permaculture farms versus conventional farms, like I I'm pretty safe in saying that if we could flip the switch and we had 
you know, all the available agricultural land converted to permaculture land tomorrow, yes, we could feed everybody on the planet. But in getting in getting there, yes, right, it would be a like it would it would not be it'd be a huge disruption to the food supply. Massive. You're I mean, you're absolutely right. Like because we cannot flip a switch. <laughs> Right, it's not possible. Right, I mean, especially with permaculture, that takes probably decades to build an environment that is actually truly functioning the way it should. I'm guessing, yeah. at least. So, y- you bring up a lot of good points, and I, I mean, I, I will admit, I, I jumped into this initially saying, no, cloud seeding is dumb. Let's not do it. Um, but you, you really kind of hammer home how how ambiguous this question is not cloud seeding specifically but manipulation of nature in, in general um i i think that you know playing god to make it rain in places we want more rain eh, uh, but playing god to blow up the asteroid that's on a collision course with earth yeah I'm I'm for that. I think most people would be. And I think I think that's evidence that humans need a very present danger that it will make an immediate change in their life before humans decide to behave differently. I mean, you just put it perfectly. Like, yeah, if we knew there was an asteroid about to hit the earth and we knew that it would wipe out life as we know it. Yeah, I'm into it. I'm cool. But we're just like, "Hey, um it might be really hard to grow crops in like 50 years because of all these different things going on in the world. Whatever they're directly connected to doesn't quite matter. Like we talked about in coffee last week. Talk to a farmer. They'll tell you, they'll, they'll give you the real deal. They will tell you that the world is changing. And since it's a gradual problem, since it doesn't really affect us, since there's so many things between the price we pay for our ear of corn at the market and the farmer, there's so many things buffering that, you know, the system, if you will. I think it makes it precludes us from actually seeing that there is a problem at all. Because we're allowed the opportunity to deny it. Because it's fine. Corn is still 99 cents an ear. Yeah, I don't even know if that's true. But like, so... Way too expensive. <laughs> so do, do humans need to see imminent danger before they actually act or can we actually think ahead of time, prepare for impending changes, even if we don't know what the changes are going to be, and then set ourselves up to where we don't have to react to the environment, we get to cultivate the environment. <laughs>